Welcome to this podcast from the Bay Church. We hope you're blessed by the message. To find out more, please visit our website at www.the-bay-church.org.uk. Thank you, Jesus. <sighs> you know, it's our absolute passion that every single person in this room today would would taste and see something about the love of the Father, something about the love of their wonderful Savior Jesus, and would know the love of Holy Spirit with them and in them right now. So we turn our face towards you, God. We welcome you more and more to come and to encounter us in this moment. Would you break those things that need to be broken in us? God, would you break us out of the boxes that we've, that we've established? Would you, would you reveal to us the limitations that we've put on ourselves and on you? And would you show us something about your love today that we've never seen? We invite you to come and to change us. <laughs> Try not to hit the mic. Last week, um, Laura spoke to us um, from the passage in Ephesians 5, and uh, she started with a verse that I'm going to start with because it's what it's all about. And it's Ephesians 5, verse 1. It says, Be imitators of God in everything you do, for then you will represent your Father as his beloved sons and daughters. And continue to walk surrendered to the extravagant love of Christ. For he surrendered his life as a sacrifice for us. If you hear nothing else today, just take that word and go, God, would you show me afresh your love and help me to imitate your love. So that this world would see what it's like to be loved by a God who lays down his life for me. So we're going to continue on that passage, but it's, and it's from that same theme, but it's about what does it look like? What does it look like in terms of marriage? What does it look like in families? What does it look like when you go to work every day? What does it look like to imitate the God of love wherever we go so that the world would see what that love is like? <laughs> You see, my prayer is that our ability to encounter his love and model his love would increase and it would affect every relationship that we have. I know that I go on and on about relationships. I just personally think that that's what life is all about. It's about our relationship with God and it's about our relationship with one another. And I'm not going to change the tune until he tells me to. (laughs) Because there's something that we need to grasp. That this is his, first and foremost, this is his evangelism strategy. This is how the world will know what he's like. In our ability to demonstrate the love of Jesus wherever we go. So Jez and I are going to read you the passage together. And it's my privilege to preach with my lovely husband. (laughs) It's worth pointing out that we're not going to put the words up on the screen because that's a different translation. We're going to read from the the Passion Translation this morning, which it's different to the Message Translation. It's not a paraphrase. It's actually a word-for-word Greek translation or uh, Greek or Hebrew, depending on where it's coming from. But um, So the words that... Brian Simmons has used in the translation, he's very carefully chosen to try and create the flavor of what the original text was meaning um, rather than some of the other translations that operate in a different way. So we're reading from this one because we feel that the flavor of the words helps the understanding of the passage, particularly for this one. Is that me? Yeah. I can't remember who's starting. I think it's me. 
Always give thanks to the Father. Sorry, so this is Ephesians 5, verse 20. It says, always give thanks to the Father for every person he brings into your life in the name of the Lord Jesus. And out of your reverence for Christ, be supportive of each other in love. For wives, this means being devoted to your husband, like you're tenderly devoted to our Lord. For the husband provides leadership for the wife, just as Christ provides leadership for his church, as the savior and reviver of the body. In the same way, the church is devoted to Christ. Let the wives be devoted to their husbands in everything. And to the husbands, you are to demonstrate love for your wives with the same tender devotion that Christ demonstrated to us, his bride. For he died for us, sacrificing himself to make us holy and pure, cleansing us through the showering of the pure water of the word of God. All that he does in us is designed to make us a mature church for his pleasure until we become a source of praise to him, glorious and radiant, beautiful and holy, without fault or flaw. Husbands have the obligation of loving and caring for their wives the same way they love and care for their own bodies. For to love your wife is to love your own self. No one abuses his own body, but pampers it, serving and satisfying its needs. That's exactly what Christ does for his church. He serves and satisfies us as members of his body. For this reason, a man is to leave his father and his mother and lovingly hold to his wife, since the two have become joined as one flesh. Marriage is the beautiful design of the Almighty, a great and and sacred mystery meant to be a vivid example of Christ and his church. I'm just going to read that again because I love it so much. Marriage is the beautiful design of the Almighty, a great and sacred mystery meant to be a vivid example of Christ and his church. So every married man should be gracious to his wife, just as he is gracious to himself, and every wife should be tenderly devoted to her husband. Children, if you want to be wise, listen to your parents. Especially my children, listen to your parents and do what they tell you, and the Lord will help you. For the commandment, honor your father and your mother, was the first of the Ten Commandments with a promise attached. You will prosper and live a long life, full life, if you honor your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. (laughs) Whoops. But raise them up with loving discipline and counsel that brings the revelation of our Lord. Those who are employed should listen to their employers and obey their instruction with great respect and honor. Serve them with humility in your hearts as though you were working for the master. Always do what is right, and not only when others are watching, so that you may please Christ as his servants by doing his will. Serve your employers wholeheartedly and with love, as though you were serving Christ and not men. Be assured that anything you do that is beautiful and excellent will be repaid by our Lord, whether you're an employee or an employer. And to the caretakers of the flock, I say, do what is right with your people by forgiving them when they offend you, for you know there is a master in heaven that shows no favoritism. Hmm. (coughs) Let's just do that. It's good. Sounds good, yeah. I want to jump straight in from that, and um, I want to explore some theology with you this morning. Are you up for that? I hope it doesn't make your head hurt too much, but some of the stuff in these passages is really, really important that we understand them well, and we understand them correctly, or what I hope is correctly, because if if we get the wrong skew on them, we end up making big mistakes, and we don't want to make big mistakes. When I was around 20, I was part of a church that taught biblically that alcohol was wrong. 
<laughs> we'll pray for you later, Alan. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's actually fairly simple to create a case by picking out Bible verses that would suggest that alcohol is not a good thing to be part of. Um, we can do that with you know, what you might call a cut-and-paste theology, that we pick the verses that, that emphasize or, or reinforce the point of view that we already have. Now, in terms of understanding what God's heart is on a subject, that's not particularly helpful. We need to look at whether those verses as a whole fit into God's heart, what we know of God's heart, and the themes of God's Word. If we look at something like alcoholism, um, or alcohol, you know, the, the, the wine, the new wine, was very much a symbology. It was part of the Last Supper, the communion. We use it in um, remembering what Christ did on the cross. Uh, Jesus talked about, you know, he wouldn't drink of the vine until he was in heaven, so there's obviously wine in heaven. And it's like, well, how, how does that fit in with these main themes of what we're hearing about in terms of wine? So that doesn't seem to fit with a theology that says that alcohol should be banned completely. We shouldn't touch alcohol. Now, to be fair, this was coming from two pastors who were ex-alcoholics, so there was a bias that came in. But it's important that we don't let our past experience bias what we understand from the Word of God. Yeah? Now, unfortunately, today, there are many churches, because of either previous historical bias or even culture, they believe that leadership is male only, and particularly church leadership is male only. Now, at this stage, I'm not going to say whether that's right or wrong, but we're going to explore some of that together, okay? And I, I want you to... Not. I really hope it's not. Come on, babe. <laughs> right. Let's, let's start with, with Ephesians 5, verse 22. Okay? Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Should we just stop there? <laughs> now, the verse goes on. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. But there are some key words there, aren't there, that can, that can change the meaning significantly. Um, it's actually okay to put that verse up on there, because my, my references are now from the NIV. So what are the key words there? The key wo a key word is head, isn't it? And a key word is submit in that verse. Interestingly, the word submit is not actually in the original text. It's just implied. In verse 22, it's not in the original text. It's implied by the context of the rest of the passage. So however they've translated the rest of the passage, because in other verses the word submit is there, it's been implied back into verse 22. So just bear that in mind in terms of how we translate this. But there's a key word which is head. Yeah? What does head mean? Does it mean authority? Um, or does it not? And the, and the lead into that verse is submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. So we've got to put that into the context of what we're talking about here as well. Now the Greek word for head, unfortunately it doesn't particularly help us because it, it's a word called kephali and it literally means my head, my cranium. So, so we need to kind of explore that word. Now the way that you explore things like that is you look at where else that word is used in the Bible. And a lot of key verses are actually talking about um, the Trinity in terms of head. So we'll explore a couple of those. So 1 Corinthians 11 and 3 says, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 
So is that suggesting a hierarchy in terms of head, in terms of authority? Perhaps. But yet, in John 10.30, Jesus is saying, I am the Father of one, which suggests there isn't a hierarchy. So, so which way is it? Is God the boss and Jesus the enforcer and Holy Spirit is some kind of subordinate helper? If there is a hierarchy, then if you look back at that verse, in Corinthians, the word order is wrong. Because really, it, it should say, the head of every woman is man, the head of every man is Christ, the head of Christ is God. But, but actually, Paul doesn't use the correct order to suggest a hierarchy, which actually suggests that perhaps isn't a hierarchy. And if Jesus was a subordinate to God, um, then that would mean that the cross sacrifice wasn't actually enough because it wasn't really fully God on the cross. And we get ourselves into a bit of a mess with that. Now, this morning, we don't really have time to, to go into like an extended um, exploration of the Trinity. But basically, there's been a lot of discussion over history. There was a guy called Arius in AD 300, around that time, um, who was declared a heretic for basically coming up with the conclusion that the Trinity was a hierarchy. So we don't really want to go there. Um, it's fairly widely accepted, I believe, in churches today that there is no hierarchy within the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are self, uh, that are you know, loving each other, encouraging each other, empowering each other, um, and honoring each other in, a, in almost, you might describe it as like a cyclic dance, is way that, um, the way that one theologian has described it. So I think we can, we can stand on fairly firm ground saying that there's no hierarchy in the Trinity, yet we're getting this word head all the time. The head of this, the head of this. Perhaps another way, we'll look at some other verses. Ephesians 4:15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, so the word head was in there again. And Colossians 2:19. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So if you think of your head for a moment, there are probably two basic ways that you could interpret what your head does. You could say, okay, the head is the thing that, that um, governs the rest of the body, it controls what I do. Or you could say, well, actually the head is the the place where hormones and enzymes are triggered, where you know signals are assimilated, and um, and and basically it it does the things that the body needs to survive and to thrive. So it's actually a, um, a, a, a almost a source or a a help for the body. Actually, I shouldn't use that word help because we'll come onto that later, but. So there's, there's those two kind of things. One suggests an, a, a hierarchy or an authority. The other suggests that it's actually enabling, an enabling for the body. So perhaps the word head, if we jump back to the, the wives and husbands, perhaps the word head is more about enabling, more about source than it is about hierarchy. Rich Smith, who uh, does a course of about nine hours of teaching on some of this stuff, uses the word headship, but he uses it as a verb. So he says, you know, how does, how does Christ headship the church, or how does a man headship his wife? And in terms of how does Jesus headship the church? Well, he died for the church, and he seated them in heavenly places. Come on. How should a man headship his wife? You see, God's model perfect relationship with the Trinity. We can apply that back to the 
submit to one another with reverence for Christ. You know, with all of our relationships, whether it's a, just a man-woman or a marriage relationship or a work relationship or a parent-child relationship, we should all be having that, that model of the Trinity as our goal, loving, honoring, serving each other. Yeah? So if there's no hierarchy in the Trinity, because that word head is talking about source and empowerment and bringing life, and it's not talking specifically about hierarchy, then how does that apply to men and women in general? How does it apply to marriage? Okay, so it says in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, we've got husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So men, we have an obligation here. <laughs> we are expected to lay down our lives for our wives. That's not asked of wives. Only the men are asked to lay down their lives as Christ laid down his life for the church. Does that speak of you being domineering or authorita authoritarian? towards your wife? I don't think so. I like to think of our marriage as more of a team than a hierarchy. We work well as a team. <laughs> We've got different strengths, different weaknesses. If we bring that together, we become more than the sum of the parts. We're very different, though, as very well. Very different. <laughs> But what we can do is we can allow me to be fully who I am, the fully man part that I bring, and Nick can be fully the woman that she is and fully the woman that she brings. I'm not saying that we have to be the same because we're not the same. Men and women are very, very different. But they can be fully who they are. Come on. It's not to say that if it comes down to a hard decision that the ultimate responsibility doesn't fall with me. Because I, in a way, have the ultimate responsibility of laying down my life, the ultimate sacrifice. So therefore, I guess the ultimate responsibility should lay with me, but we still work as a team. And we can probably count on one hand, or maybe even less, <laughs> the number of times where it's ever come down to that. Yeah. <laughs> So does that kind of picture fit more with the heart of God as we understand it? In terms of, you know, um, general themes like the gospel is open to all. God's love is open to all. There's no, there's no um, Jew nor Gentile, no slave nor free, no male nor female. It's like there are no, there are no boundaries, there are no constraints. So therefore... For me, that fits in much better with God's heart. If we jump back to the very beginning, God creating men and women. Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So both male and female are in the image of God. Yeah? Doesn't really suggest a hierarchy there. Um, in some translations, it'll say God created man, but it's really the word mankind, which obviously includes male, female. Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Okay, big error number one, we've translated that word as helper. <laughs> we'll explore a little bit of what that means as well. The Hebrew word is a word called Ezer, E-Z-E-R. And again, let's look where else that's used to try and understand. Is that a good translation of the word? Does anybody um, know, know about Strong's numbers? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, there's an there's a easy way to do Greek and Hebrew translation. 
little tip. If you have a Bible that has Strong's numbers in, or you've got an online resource that can show Strong's numbers, basically most keywords in a sentence will have, you can look up the number against them, and it'll either be a G for Greek or an H number for Hebrew, and then it will show you what the original word is and where else it's translated or how many other times it's translated. And you can search on that word to see where else that's translated. Just, it means you don't have to understand Greek or Hebrew. You do quick um, word exploration like that. Really helpful. So if we did a quick word exploration on ESA and see where else it's used, now don't forget that's currently translated as helper, which to me suggests like an assistant or a subordinate. Yeah? Okay. Psalm 33, verse 20. The Lord, he is my help and my shield. The Lord? Okay. Exodus 18, 4. He said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help, my easer, come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The maker of heaven and earth, just a helper, a subordinate? I don't think so. I think we're talking about a helper in terms of mighty, forceful, warrior kind of helper, which is a very different helper. And when we take that back to Adam and Eve, that's a very different kind of helper, isn't it? So, we're nearly there. On my bit, anyway. <laughs> Genesis 2.21, so the Lord, caused, Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs, the man's ribs, and then closed up the place with flesh. Okay, so Eve was created out of man. That's why we have the word woman, out of man. Surely that means that, you know, she's sort of part of the man, only a little bit of the man. Okay. Well, interestingly, the word rib also means side, and there's some symbology there. Perhaps Eve is standing side by side, Adam, in terms of how they're meant to operate in God's eyes. If there was meant to be a hierarchy there, or if Nick was supposed to be, you know, my servant as opposed to my wife, Surely it would make more sense for, for God to use a bone in the foot, wouldn't it? Something like that. That would, that would fit the symbology. But he doesn't. He uses something from Adam's side. And also, we can say, oh, well, you know, um, the, 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 you know, the order of creation is like, well... Um, you know, Eve's created from man and therefore she's less important. <laughs> if you look at the order of creation, do you notice that God created in order of importance? And actually the woman was created later than the man. And in that logic would suggest that the woman is actually much more important than Adam. So we've got a problem there. Now I'm not suggesting that women are more important than men, <laughs> but I am suggesting they're equally as important. I firmly believe that what I've tried to describe this morning fits in with God's heart and with the main themes of what he's trying to demonstrate with the relationship between men and women. I believe that men and women are on an equal footing in God's eyes and should be in the world's eyes. They're very different, yes. We shouldn't be trying to make women rise up and become men. That isn't what is intended. We should be helping women raise up to become powerful women. And we should be helping men raise up to become powerful men. Come on. But yeah. we each should be our own. Yeah. Um, over the years, unfortunately, and through history, and probably partly because most of the theologians in history have been men, <laughs> we've had a number of passages that have been poorly interpreted the translations are generally pretty good, but it's the interpretation that is poor. Um, and it's done a lot of damage. And I, I believe that it's time that we set the balance straight. 
that it is, um, in the words of Pastor Emmanuel, when we were praying this morning, that it is a balance between men and women. Yeah. I believe it's time that we start shifting cultures to embrace women to their rightful places. I believe it's time we started raising up women to be powerful leaders in the workplace, in the world, and particularly in the church. Their rightful place alongside men, their rightful place alongside men in this church, in this city, and in this region. Come on. Mm. I wonder if I could just do something for a minute. Could all the women stand up, please? This is actually very hard to do um, because I feel the spiritual implications on it as well. But as a man, I want to repent before all of you. because of the way that my race has oppressed women. The way that me and my race have oppressed women in the church, women in the workplace, women in families, in marriages. And I say that I'm truly sorry. (laughs) And I'm sorry on behalf of this church as well. And I pray for the culture to shift. I pray for the wrongs to be righted. I pray for, for the um, intentions of God of perfect relationship to be manifest in this place, yeah. in your families and in your marriages, in your relationships with others. I pray for all of these women here to be raised up yeah. to where they should be. That dreams that have been crushed because they're a woman, would rise again. (laughs) I pray that this place would be known as a place where women are valued, where women are esteemed, where women can have their rightful place, and where the kingdom of God is pleased because we're getting the balance right. Come on. Mm. So we declare that in Jesus' name. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. You may sit down. <laughs> Thanks, babe. I, I know how hard that was for him, you know, coming back into a region where it's really obvious that the Northeast is, uh, believes different things about women than even other parts of this country. Um, ha- massively impacted us. We, we got back here three years ago and we were like, where are all the women leaders? Where are they in this church? Who's been investing in women for years and years to raise them up, to be alongside their men? And uh, yeah, I, I, I can feel the weight of what Jez has just said, not just for me. And I, I think personally this church is, is amazing. I think we've, we've, we're getting so much of this right, but what but what it's not doing at the moment is impacting this region. We want to see more female, I want to see more female leaders when I go to church uh, leaders meetings, because I'm alone. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing and the correction that you're bringing and the uh, beautiful benefits we're gonna see when men and women stand together side by side, not competing, but actually, bringing who they are to strengthen one another. That's our dream.
See, this passage says that our marriages are to be a vivid example of Christ's love for his church. In a, in a recent survey in my son's school, 92% of the 15-year-olds the in that class thought that marriage was pointless. 92%. So don't get me started on, on what they think about sex before marriage, because I can tell you right now, they have no concept of covenant. They have no concept of what, what marriage is supposed to look like as a man and a woman make love and become one, and a covenant is cut. You see, there's something beautiful about the way that God is, is demonstrating his love through marriage, and yet a generation is rising up that has no time for it. They think it's pointless. And I don't know about you, but that does nothing but encourage me and fuel me to go, I want my marriage to, to, to be a powerful encounter for somebody, for them to see something in the way that I love my husband, in the way that I willingly submit, <laughs> don't cry, in the way that I willingly submit to him because of the way he loves me. It's beautiful for me to come and go, do you know what? If that's what you think, I'm happy because I know that he lays down his life for me. It's covenant. It's a concept of covenant. <laughs> in the Bible, in, uh, in Song of Songs, there's a, there's a passage, or the, the whole book, and I want to encourage you to read the book this summer. I just feel like there's something on this this book that Jesus is trying to, to teach us. But Jesus reveals himself as the bridegroom king. He says, do you, know what, do you want to know what my love looks like? Here it is. This is his words of the bridegroom king in Song of Songs, verse 4. Every part of you is so beautiful, my darling. Perfect is your beauty without flaw within. Now you're ready, my bride, to come with me as we climb the highest peaks together. Come with me through the archway of trust. For you reach into my heart. With one flash of your eyes, I'm undone by your love. This is the bit that I just gets me. This is Jesus saying to me. This is Jesus saying to you. This is Jesus saying to his church here and to the church as his bride. My beloved my equal, my bride. You leave me breathless. I'm overcome by merely a glance from your worshiping eyes, for you have stolen my heart. I want you to grasp something today of a bridegroom king who, who so loves his church that he would lay down his life for her but doesn't just go, yeah, I've done that and that's it. He goes, this is how I feel about you. When I think of you, I want you to know you've stolen my heart. One glimpse of your eyes as you're worshiping me has me undone. That's what Jesus says this morning to us as his church. And there's something about us grasping the depth of love from our bridegroom king that transforms the way that we love other people. I could tell you why I'm so passionate about a fatherless generation <laughs> being raised right now in this country that doesn't have a concept of a father because I know that Jesus said, hey, listen up, let me tell you who Father God is. There was a story of two sons. And one of the sons goes to his father and goes, I wish you were dead, Dad. I want my inheritance now. So the dad, instead of being all domineering and controlling and manipulative in that situation, he was like, I love you, son. It's always been yours. And his son goes off and he loses everything. And he wastes it all. And he finds himself with pigs, eating the same stuff as pigs, covered in the same stuff as pigs. And he's going, what am I doing? Even the servants of my dad's house are treated better than this. So he goes, I'm going to go back and I'm going to plead that my dad would just take me back as a servant in his house. And he turns back and the father from a long way off sees him 
does that say about our God? He sees him coming. He picks up his robe and very undignified for a Jewish man, he runs towards his son. And he embraces him and he kisses him repeatedly. He kisses him and he kisses him and he kisses him. You see, the culture was that anyone in that town could stone that son because he had dishonored his father. And yet his dad runs towards him and embraces him. And he goes, restore to him his identity. Put a robe upon him that says to everybody else in this village that this is my boy that he has my identity. Put a ring on his finger that says, this is your authority. You are my son. You have full rights to do what I, whatever you want in, in the context of family. You are not a slave. You are a son. Here are some sandals for your feet. You see, there's something about the Father's heart of love that we've got to get hold of because there's a generation rising up that doesn't know what a dad looks like. And when we get it, when Jez loves his boys unconditionally like that, the world sees and pays attention and goes, I want that. When we stand up as dads in this church and as mothers in this church and go, do you know what? I will love you to the best of my ability with the love that God's poured into my heart. I will show you, if you've never had a dad, what it feels like to be loved, to be embraced, to be kissed. I will restore to you the authority that was always meant to be yours because my dad is your dad. Here you go. You see, in terms of masters and slaves, he goes, I'll show you what it looks like to be a master. He took off his robe and he began to wash his disciples' feet. There's something that we need to grasp about covenant that says, I lay down my life for you, for you to be all that you're called to be, for you to be empowered with all that I am, so that, so that together we can be one. See, my boss in this church is Alan. <laughs> I, I do a lot of work in this church without being paid, and I do a lot of work for As One without being paid. But do you know what? It's a privilege. It's a privilege to bring who I am and to to offer something to him as my boss because I know that he's pouring out his life for me. I know that he'd do anything for my benefit and that he'd lay down his life so that I can be all that I can be. And even by me doing that, as me choosing to serve him, I'm being empowered by who he is. There's something beautiful about learning what it looks like to submit, (laughs) to serve, to honor one another. Oh, run out of time. (laughs) I, the other day, had John Wigglesworth, I don't think he's here today, came round to our house, and uh, he had the biggest bar of chocolate I've ever seen. And I'm thinking, come on, that's so good. Thank you, John. Come to honor me and thank me for something. And he goes past me and he goes, Dan and Josh, this is for you. (laughs) 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 To share with your parents. No. no. (laughs) He didn't say that. He'd written a beautiful card for them, just congratulating them on how they'd postured their hearts for the exams they'd just done. And you know what, in that moment, I was like, as lovely as it would have been for him to honor me with chocolate, because I do like that, (laughs) there was something more beautiful for me that he chose to honor my children, because that brought more honor for me as their their mom. And I think that that somehow in, in church life, we think to ourselves, we can't honor one another particularly well because actually we're taking away the honor from God and what we're missing is that as we choose to honor one another well we're actually honoring him more than we could ever do 
What if we in this church had such a culture of honor, of speaking life, of saying to people, I see that gold inside of you, come on, I love it. Let me, let me bring who I am to help you be all that you can be. What would this church look like? I tell you what it looked like, it looked like life because the world doesn't know what honor is and yet we get to, we get to model it <laughs> and remind them that honor, when we honor, it always brings life. Uh, I'm gonna leave the rest for another time because I'm sure I'll speak on relationships again. <laughs> I, the other day, sat down to, I probably sat down to write my sermon and I, and I felt the prompting of the Lord just saying to me, Nick, I, I just want to show you something about me. And so I, I put to one side the fact I was supposed to be writing a sermon and I, and I prioritized that I just wanted to encounter him. I just wanted to see something about who he was. And I knew that he was asking me to write it down, which if you know me, is quite vulnerable. I, I don't tend to write things um, down very much. And then to my horror, <laughs> I felt like he wanted me to share it. And I only bring this to you because my heart is for you to have a similar encounter. For you to, to, you to take something of what God was saying in this moment and take it for yourself and go, God, I want to encounter you like that. I want to see something of your love afresh. Yeah? So I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes. And the invitation I felt was for him to say, was him saying, Nick, look into my eyes. And this is what I wrote down. Your eyes are oceans of deep delight, filled with wonder, love, and joy. The lightness in the glint is like a breath that lifts me up to believe more and higher. Your intense focus of your pupils calls me into mystery and wonder and adventure, knowing you have me in your fully focused, intense passion. I see colors inviting me to dance with abandon and freshly experience your creative love, making all things new. I see the shape of your eye that clearly is smiling with real authentic pleasure and electric joy. A joy that says, I see you and I know you and I'm fully pleased with who you are. A joy that lightens my spirit to know that you're so full of glorious hope for my future that you want to laugh with me with such excitement and happiness. I see a moisture in your eyes that tells me your passion for me to be fully me has seen the pain. You've seen the longing. You've seen the heartache that I felt. And your living water as tears pours out for me to know you're in the midst of that struggle. I feel the invitation of your loving eyes drawing me in, inviting me to not just know about your love, but to fully experience the love of the one who is nothing but love. 100% intense, real, life-changing, transforming love that never runs dry, never changes the tune, never gets distracted, never controls, and never requires me to be or do anything to earn such favor. Your love, your look, is so beyond anything I've ever experienced. It's a look that awakens my spirit to burst to life. It's a look that shakes me to life from the inside, heart pumping, limbs tingling, soul enlightening life, that believes and hopes and dreams with a freshness 
and an innocence that anything is possible. May I never look away. <laughs> May your eyes be seen in my eyes so others can see who I see, can know who I know, can too feel this same love, wonder and joy. Jesus, I thank you for how you've modeled love to us. And I thank you that there's so much more for us to discover. And because of you, Jesus, we get to encounter you. We get to be transformed by you. Just put your hand on your heart. And if you dare to pray this prayer, or say amen at the end. Jesus, would you use every relationship to model your love? Would you transform marriages, God, and start with me? Would you transform families, God, and start with me? Would you show us what it looks like to live in godly authority that understands how beautiful it is to have a headship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to have the headship of, of a husband, and a boss. <laughs> God, would you show us as a church how to be a church of love in every area, in everything that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.